Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're joined by the accomplished Bryn Dettinger, curator of mycology at the Natural History Museum of Utah and associate professor in the biology department at the University of Utah. Bryn hails from Minnesota and attended the University of Minnesota for his PhD, where he studied the molecular systematics of clavarioid and porcini mushrooms. He has carried out field work all over the world, including exciting collecting trips to Vietnam, Brazil, and Cameroon. He spent years in the UK as the head of mycology at the world-renowned Kew Gardens, and since 2003 has published dozens of research papers in respected scientific journals around the world. Now running the Dettinger Lab at the University of Utah, he continues to pursue molecular systematics research on mushrooms and other fungi around the world, combining fieldwork, collections, and modern genomic tools, while maintaining a keen interest in home brewing and whiskey. Bryn's work has overlapped with many other guests on the Mushroom Hour, and he has been one of the most recommended mycologists to have on the show, so I'm excited to learn so much about someone with such a vast body of work when it comes to kingdom fungi. Bryn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to, to dive into your work. Before we get going, though, something I'm always curious about with all of my guests is how you got obsessed with mushrooms. And for you, this is not a light obsession. We're talking decades-long research, traveling the world. I mean, what started that relationship with mushrooms and mycology? So it's always difficult to pinpoint the exact moment in time where you get bit by the fungus bug, but it certainly happened fairly early on for me. I developed my passion when I was in high school, and I probably was predisposed to taking an interest in mushrooms or other natural history because I grew up in a family that spent a lot of time outdoors camping and fishing and hunting in northern Minnesota. So and I had bears and moose walking through my yard. So I had a lot of close interaction with nature. So I was probably predisposed. And although my family wasn't particularly keen on sort of natural history per se, like, you know, I wasn't brought up in a family that was out birding all the time or <laughs> trying to identify the plants all the time. But we always had field guides that were shelf, especially in our camper. We had a mushroom field guide that I have to say was probably never open until I took an interest in high school. And there was a moment, there was a day I remember when my mother, during the summer, mother uh, saw that I was and walked up to me with this field guide in her hand and said, why don't you tell me what those mushrooms are in her backyard? But this was the first time I'd really ever picked up a mushroom. And I spent the afternoon aging through this field guide and seeing the intricacies complexities of mushrooms for the first time in the whole world is unveiled to me. I identify that as sort of the watershed moment, sort of epiphany, if you will, where everything after that has been a mushroom obsession for me. So it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment, but that sounds <laughs> pretty definitive, uh, that time with the mushroom field guide. And it's funny that your mom kind of pushed you to go out there and let's go identify some mushrooms. Now, regretted it later when uh, I had decided that it was an edible mushroom and I was going to eat it for dinner. Uh -oh. He was rather horrified by that idea. But my dad, <laughs> my dad was all in. And so we, we cooked it up and ate it and it was delicious and we didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, you live to tell the tale. But it sounds like, too, they had a bent more of 
as outdoors men and women rather than academics when it came to nature. Oh, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So that explains how you got out into nature, how you discover mushrooms and fungi. Uh, high school, I think, is pretty early for a lot of people to really get inoculated, as I like to say. And as you got into exploring this world, were there any people that stood out as kind of mentors or figures that you really latched onto in the growing mycology or mushroom movement that really inspired you? Well, there are people I, I didn't know that I found inspiring early on. Gary Linkoff, he's the one that wrote the field guide that I basically taught myself out of. So that always, you know, was an important person for me early on. As I entered the professional community, other other people, right, came into my life. And there's a long list of names that I can yeah. give you of people that I find truly inspiring in my college. That is always the trouble when you ask someone about an inspiration or a mentor. They're like, I, I don't know where to start. Yeah. I want to make sure you mention everyone. <laughs> but I guess how early on in your foraging or your explorations of mushrooms did you stumble upon porcini? Because when I read about your yeah. work, there's a decades-long theme of the pursuit of porcini. When did that all start for you? This all happened in graduate school. So I started out in grad school in uh, David McLaughlin's lab at the University of Minnesota. And he had a project at the time where they were surveying the ectomycorrhizal fungal community in an oak savanna. Mm. And I was put on that during my first or second semester, I can remember, to try to help identify the mushrooms that were being collected. And there was a mushroom that was encountered fairly regularly up there that had been identified as Boletus edulis for decades. And uh, when I looked at it, I could see immediately that it wasn't Boletus edulis. And so that took me down this rabbit hole of, you know, what is this thing? <laughs> what are all of these species of porcini that are out there? And, and how are they related? And here I am, what is it, 15 years later. And, and you know, I'm still, I'm still stuck down that rabbit hole <laughs> a bit. But the other thing I should say, you know, it wasn't just that it was porcini edible, you know, it was kind of a large charismatic thing, but it was also that everyone that I encountered, nearly everyone, was always full of fly larvae. And I became really fascinated with what that relationship constituted between the insects that were utilizing the mushrooms as brood sites and the mushrooms. I thought that the first thing I needed to do to figure this out was understand who the players were. That's what set me on this track. So that's a really interesting rabbit hole to go down is, is using the insects using porcini as a brooding site, as a habitat, as a nesting area. Yeah. And so most anybody who is listening, who's collected wild mushrooms knows that virtually every mushroom you pick up is going to have fly larvae in it. Right. And there's exceptions, right? But in, in that association, although it's well known, is poorly understood, really. And we don't know exactly what the diversity of the invertebrates that are using the mushrooms is. We don't know what kind of relationship over evolutionary time there might be. We don't even know how specific that association might be. Um, there's just a lot we don't understand. And yet, for me, I feel like some of the major features of mushrooms that we recognize are probably adaptations in response to this type of infestation. If you think about the partial veil, right, underneath the cap of a mushroom that protects or is thought to protect the gills before they mature to produce spores, right. that veil, you know, first of all, there's no actual experimental evidence that I've ever seen 
that has told us exactly what that veil is for. <laughs> Just quite interesting when you think about that's it. That's a huge, <laughs> yeah, that's a huge unknown, huge question um, mark to have. But on the assumption that it is protective, it's a me- mechanical defense against mycophagy, uh, which I think is a reasonable hypothesis. You know, that's a huge, that's a huge adaptation to have evolved multiple times in response to that ecological pressure. For me, I expect that over the course of my career, that I will begin to understand just how much all these different features of mushrooms, their wild textures and colors and shapes and all this stuff, sizes even, you know, porcini, the big fat stipe of porcini, why is it so fat? Why do they invest so much, so many resources in that? Right. Well, if it's full of fly larvae, the fly larvae are going to impact the integrity of that structure for holding up the pileus. And so if you're bigger, you have more time to hold your cap up <laughs> before it collapses, right? Of course, I, yeah. I mean, this is just a hypothesis. I'm just speculating. But I love the road you're going down, though, and it opens up so many possibilities when we start to think about how much mushroom adaptation is in response to insect pressure and then expanding that outwards. How much does adaptations comes from other fauna pressure, plant pressure, pathogen pressure. I mean, that's well known. That's kind of why evolution happens. You have pressures like that, but it's just something we don't think about. We take it for granted that these things are are the way they are. The physical form is the way it is. We don't really look all the time at the deeper level. Why is it that way? Why is the why is the type so fat? And this interesting connection between mushrooms and, and insects also kind of connects to your work uh, not to pull us too far away, but I, I just thought of that connection to your work with Dracula orchids, where mm-hmm. here you have a plant that's trying to benefit from this co-evolution between insects and mushrooms. Yeah, right. So I would say, you know, the body of my work looks rather varied, <laughs> which yeah. is, but it really is all kind of the common theme to all of it is symbiosis. And I'm really interested in how interactions between fungi and other organisms has shaped the diversity of both partners. So, and I look at it in different scales of integration from the Dracula orchid, mushroom mimicking Dracula orchids, where the Dracula orchids have no influence on reproduction or survival of the mushrooms that they mimic. Right. To more integrated systems like the ectomycorrhizal system, where both the plants and the fungus rely on each other, they depend on each other, codependent for survival, but their reproduction is independent to then more integrated, more fully integrated, strictly integrated uh, symbioses like the fungus growing ant system, which I guess we'll talk about. Yeah, well, what a great way to set up the themes of your work. And the porcini kind of falls squarely into that category of being both an EM fungi directly supporting the plants around it. So there's one symbiosis and then a symbiosis with insect life with flower larvae, something I hadn't thought of before. And before, you know, we expand even more on this, what is your definition of porcini? Because I saw that word porcini used in your research. I think for foragers listening, we think Boletus edulis, or maybe, you know, Boletus uh, reticulare, the the brown stem that kind of looks like porcini. What is this definition of porcini? So that's the Italian common name. I'm borrowing it because it's the most widely used within the culinary world. So when I use the term porcini, I use it in more than one way, I have to admit, but uh, I usually will, I'll be specific about my usage. So right. generally, when I use the term porcini, I'm referring to the genus Boletus, 
which there's some taxonomy issues at the moment, but that would be Boletus edulis and all of its closest relatives. At the moment, we have been able to document 53 species globally that would be considered Porcini under that definition. Now, that was something in flux just within the past couple of years, right? The classification of Boletacea. Wasn't that something that just changed? Okay, yeah. So then if you step back a bit and you look at the wider group that Porcini belongs to, that's the family Boletaceae. Okay, okay. And there are multiple genera within that family. Unfortunately, the current status of our understanding of the family tree for that group is very poor. And that means that the definition and boundaries of genera within that are completely unstable. And one of the trends we've seen is as a result of that instability, there's been a proliferation of new names that are being proposed for different branches that show up. The situation we're in now is basically every species is being described within its own genus. I mean, that's a bit of an overstatement, but, but honestly, if you look at the trend within the, the reclassification of this family, that's kind of what it looks like. But it's all based on lack of resolution of mm. the family tree, as opposed to these really truly representing lineages that we know are distinct and well-defined from other related taxa. So we might be missing the key genetic data on certain species that would start giving us a little wider genera's than just, you know, individual species. We've known for quite a while, um, thanks to the pioneering work by Tom Bruns, that this group is an evolutionary radiation. And what that means is that we had a lot of divergence events in a very short period of time. So it was rapid fire for, you know, a period of 10 million years or so. That gave rise to hundreds or more lineages in this very, very short period of time. That rapid growth, that rapid divergence is sort of the, the biggest challenge for phylogenetics because often there's so little time for the changes that indicate relationships. Yeah. There's so little time for those changes to be recorded. And so when we go back and we start to look for those changes, we often can't see them because they just there aren't enough of them. And so the approaches that have been taken up to this point have been looking only at small sections of the genome. But if the number of changes that record the actual relationships is very small, the chance that you're going to find them by only looking at a few sections at a time is, very, is virtually none, right? Right. And that's the problem that we've had up until now. In my lab, we've done away with only looking at small sections, and we're now looking at the entire genome across hundreds of species. And that's allowing us, for the first time, reconstruct the family tree of the Bolvataceae, what I also refer to as the Porcini mushroom family, for the first time with, with good, strong support. And that's something that I began learning just recently, was when we talk about fungal genetics, this world of PCR, you know, something that's kind of on the leading edge of citizen science, something that I don't have an intimate familiarity with. But one of the mind-blowing insights that I got actually from Todd Osmondson at University of Wisconsin was that, yeah, when we are taking a quote-unquote sequence, usually it's, you know, just one or a few genes that we're actually sequencing. And so to think that there's there's so many genes in each mushroom for us to sequence, you guys are doing really the most thorough examination 
of this family that's probably ever been done. Yes, that is true. Yeah. I'm not one to brag, <laughs> but <laughs> it's true that the project we're working on right now is the most comprehensive and exhaustive project for the Bolotesi that's ever been done. And now I'd imagine in that kind of process, there must be, because I know for, for just sequencing a single gene, you need the right primer. So what kind of process does this look like to sequence the whole genome? I mean, it must be, depending on how many genes there are, does it need that many samples? I mean, how can you guys achieve this in your lifetime? <laughs> well, the technology has changed a lot in the last 10 years, and that's what's made this possible. So when I was in graduate school, this technology didn't exist. It was being developed. It was maybe available to the biomedical industry a little bit, but it wasn't, you know, us plebeians didn't have access to it. So, but that's all changed. So this technology, and there's a number of new technologies that are coming on the heels of it, but this one, which is dominated now, is based on a company called Illumina. And they can sequence many millions of sequences in parallel. And that's the big change. So the way that we approach it now, so as you were saying, you previously, you'd have to rely on primers, that you could go in and amplify the region of the genome so that you had enough of it to be able to read the sequence. Right. Now we can basically ignore that whole step and we can just take the raw genome from an organism, chop it into pieces, glue it down onto a glass slide. And then there is a little bit of amplification on that glass slide, but it's random. It doesn't require you to know what you're targeting in advance. And I'm really glossing over some of the details here, but sure. uh, you can then, using a high-resolution camera, take pictures of these clusters that light up different colors based on the nucleotide that gets incorporated during a synthesis of a new strand. A lot of there's, technical there's a lot in there, there yeah. but suffice it to say that we're no longer restricted to looking only at a single part of the genome at a time. We can look at the entire thing at once. That's incredible and a huge departure from that arduous process I was describing. And so you're doing this, this whole family of Boletacea, and we're going to start seeing maybe what the different genera groupings are, you know, because even a small percentage genetic difference can be a really different mushroom. And, you know, when we get to this level of classification, it's really a matter of opinion, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what it's going to look like eventually. But we always hope that when we classify things, that the system of naming that we develop has practical application. You know, just naming branches on a tree just because you can see the branches on a tree. And I mean, not like a phylogenetic tree. Right. That doesn't do somebody in the field necessarily any good, right? Because right. you can't know when you're in the field <laughs> where it belongs. So my opinion, my take on it is when we go through and we rename things, those names ought to be useful for somebody when they're in the field. Even for just macro observation. Yeah. You know, some physical characteristic. Well, I guess getting more general and out of this kind of mind-bending microscopic realm that's really interesting. And it's really incredible to hear about cutting edge of genetics when it comes to fungi. And you're, you're on that front lines. But more broadly, I think people know Porcini and we're talking about this big group of bolides. I think people have a good sense of what we're talking about. I, I hope I do. You know, they're obviously ectomycorrhizal fungi. We see them in our forests here in North America. But when I was reading your work, it seems like they're quite dominant. You know, I think we're 
realizing now how complicated a community it is under the forest floor of different fungi doing different growth patterns associating with different plant hosts, all with their own motivations, their own special chemistries, everything going on. But Porcini seems to be in this convoluted underground universe, seems to be really dominant. I guess, what have you learned about the mycelium and the EM capacity of Porcini that makes it such a dominant EM EM player? Well, not much, frankly. So just just for definitions, when we're talking about this, we're talking about the family, right? Family Bolitaceae, the yes. mushroom family, yes. the larger group. Those are found worldwide. And as you said, they are dominant within every ectomycorrhizal habitat surveyed, or nearly every. You should never say every. <laughs> yeah, we can't can't ever be but that. Uh, always accept. But in most uh, ectomycorrhizal habitats surveyed, they're typically among the top three most diverse and most abundant families. Wow. And that is certainly true in our field work in Cameroon, in Guyana, and other places. So, yeah, the question that this is like the million dollar question why are there so many different species of fungi in these systems when the paradigm has been for many years that they're all doing the same thing? Right, They're all providing the plant with nitrogen and phosphorus and some water and maybe a little protection. So if they're all doing the same thing, why are there so many of them? Why so much variation? Yeah. And I'm sure you were talking to Terry about the work in Cameroon, and we found 200 some plus species. I don't even know what the number's up to in our plots. And these are three one hectare plots in a monodominant forest. So yeah. we have one species of host tree, and we've only surveyed three hectares of that forest. And there's been nearly 300 species of ectomycorrhizal fungi found. And that's just from above ground survey. That doesn't even count looking at the stuff on the roots. And we right. know that there's often a big gap between what's on the roots and what you actually see above. He ground. thought it could be as much as double. Oh, sure. I wouldn't yeah. doubt that. Yeah. So why? Why are there so many of them? Is this something where you had some other divergent causality and then they all came to the same mycorrhizal adaptation? Or was it something about plant hosts, which in the those the sign before us you're talking about, it's the same plant host. I mean, these are mono-dominant forests. So a really basic question has seemingly no uh no answer in sight, but that was something I did seem to notice about the family Bolitaceae is they are adapted for a lot of different plant hosts, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's hard to get really good evidence, direct evidence of host specificity because you need to be able to observe that on the roots of the plants to know for sure. But based on association of above ground mushrooms and hosts, there seems to be a high level of host specialization within the family. They tend to only associate with, you know, one or a few different plant families or sometimes even just species. Boletus edulis is actually a really interesting exception to that. That was me conflating Porcini and Boletus <laughs> edulis. So the family actually has a lot of specificity within each genera or specific species, but then Boletus edulis has a lot more diversity in their plant hosts. Yeah, so I would say at the species level, we see probably a relatively high level of specialization across the Bolitaceae. 
okay. except for a few kind of prominent examples. And Boletus edgeless is one of them. So that species is very widely distributed across the northern hemisphere, in North America and Europe. And it's even been co-introduced in uh, the southern hemisphere, in places like Brazil and Uruguay, and South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. It shows up when people bring in nursery stock from European or North American ectomycorrhizal hosts. So it seems to be a really weedy thing, which is great for us, right? <laughs> yeah. So that is actually the focus of my lab at the moment, is to understand what determines host specificity in Boletus edulis, if anything, or is it truly a generalist? And we're using genomics and population level sampling to, to try to answer those questions. I mean, that's one of the most basic questions I think every mushroom hunter has is why does specifically Boletus edulis associate with the trees it does? Why does it fruit where it does? Do we have any insights into that? You know, why with well-established plant hosts that we know, like out here in Marin, in Western Marin, the pine forests, why do they associate with certain individuals in those plant species and not others? <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, we don't have answers to that question. Yeah. There might be multiple factors involved, including competition, spore dispersal, all kinds of things could be contributing to that. And we're trying to look at all of those aspects in our project. But there is kind of an interesting pattern that we see, which is in North America, Boletus edulis associates almost exclusively with conifers. There are very few records, and in fact, I would say there's only two records that I know of that are verified of Boletus edulis associating with non-conifer hosts in North America. The other records I've looked at have been misidentifications. <laughs> there's rumors that I found them by oak trees and things like that from different foragers. I've never seen a Boletus edulis on an oak in North America. Everything I've seen that's been sent to me that is with oak has been a different species. Not Boletus edulis. Now, if anybody's listening out there and has samples, <laughs> we would love to have them because for, in order for us to answer the question about host specificity, we need lots of replication of individuals on different hosts in different parts of the range. And the problem is because it doesn't associate with non-conifer hosts in North America, that means we don't have anything to compare with samples that do associate with non-conifer hosts in Europe. And that means we can't tell when we look at the genetics if the changes we're seeing in the individuals that associate with non-conifer hosts is due to them being on non-conifer hosts or some other factor about where they occur. It could just be an artifact of that population of the structure of that population. That was going to be my next question, was do Boletus edgeless that you find elsewhere in the world associate with different hosts? And it sounds like they do. Yeah, so in Europe, it associates with every known ectomycorrhizal host, except for one, which is large, Larix. I don't, I'm not aware of a confirmed record of it on Larix. I suspect it probably does occur on Larix occasionally, but right. it's certainly not the most common what an intriguing question of why Boletus edulis in Europe seem to be the subset of the species that are more generalist in their selection of hosts. You know, is this a latent capacity that our Boletus edulis have here in America, but they just prefer conifers, so they would always go with conifers? I mean, what a massive question to try to answer. Now, you guys obviously are 
doing field collections, things of that nature. And you've kind of hinted at it there by your call to call to action to foragers out there. But how are citizen scientists helping you with this kind of research? They are crucially important to <laughs> what we do because we, you know, as anybody who's ever gone mushroom hunting knows, you can never predict what you're going to find when, right? right? And so if it's just up to us, you know, after 30 years of me being out in the forest, I might be lucky to find 50 Boletus edulis. <laughs> and that's not enough to do this, these kinds of projects. It's not enough to be able to get the data points we need to answer these big questions. So they are crucially important. And so it's been fascinating. I've solicited material from citizen scientists through Mushroom Observer over the past couple of years. And we've received quite a few samples of porcini from, well, worldwide, but mostly from North America. And to my surprise, uh, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but to my surprise, there are three undescribed species of porcini in North America, in people's backyards, <laughs> that citizen scientists have sent to me. Yeah, We didn't even know about these things. <laughs> that's incredible. And that's it's just such good evidence of that fact that there is no such thing as an insignificant find. You know, That's we're right. still learning so much about the picture of biodiversity when it comes to fungi. Yeah. And unlike other groups of organisms that have lots of replication in museum collections that can then be interrogated sure. for lots of different kinds of questions, we don't have that in mycology. Mycological collections tend to be focused on the infrequently encountered and rare things, right? If you're out in the field, and you're thinking about submitting something to a museum collection, are you going to submit that Russula that you see every day? <laughs> no, that's the stuff people ignore, right? right but you're right. going to pick up that really weird bully or whatever, right, that you've never seen before and will probably never see again. And that's the kind of stuff that goes into our collections, not the common Russula. And that means that when we want to ask questions about how have populations changed over time? What is the distribution of a species? We don't have the data points. Right. Why do I keep seeing that same Russell and where else is it found? Yeah. yeah. I've heard about this of tapping herbariums and fungariums to try to get more and more data to complete a picture. But when I was reading some of your work, it sounds like sometimes specimens are degraded and you can't always get whole genomes. So I guess how much of a bank are we sitting on in fungarium and herbariums? And how do we make use of that to help put this this picture together? Well, that's a good question because we're actively trying to answer that question okay. in the lab. So we are doing whole genome sequencing from very old material. In fact, we've targeted type specimens collected by Charles Peck in the late 19th century, which are highly degraded. <laughs> they look like ancient DNA, which means the DNA is chopped up into tiny little fragments. Wow. They average around 50 base pairs long. Just in comparison, the average size of a bolete genome is about 50 million bases long. So, oh my. Wow. You know, if you try to stitch together a 50 million base, 50 pieces at a time, 50 pieces, yeah, it's, it's virtually impossible. So that's, you know, that's kind of what we're working with. And it's still a bit preliminary. We haven't completed the project, but we will in the next six months, hopefully have a publication out of this. We're finding that we are able to utilize those specimens for kind of coarse grain diversity studies. So, if, for example, we can pull out the ITS barcode region, maybe not the whole thing, but a fair amount of the ITS barcode region from fairly low coverage 
Um, so not a lot of sequence data from those specimens, which is really important because it allows us to anchor some of these old names with contemporary right. material for the first time. And in fact, this is this is going to have a big impact on Porcini in North America because there have been a number of species described by Peck and others from the late 19th century and early 20th century. Those names have, have not been used in modern times. Things like Boletus multipunctus or Boletus leptocephalus. These names are still out there, but nobody's known how to apply them to modern material. Well, I now know what they are because I've been able to get sequence data from those. And it turns out that, that they are things that we are calling other things right now. <laughs> so it's going to change change some of the taxonomy, at least for North American Porcini. Name change in fungi is something we get so used to. Names are changing all the time, but you get to go back in history and pull forward some of these names and start help us kind of figure out this trail of, of taxa and taxonomical names. Really, really interesting. With this whole research you're doing on Bolotaceae, obviously we're just getting to bits and parts with as much as we can easily translate verbally. There's so much that goes into this. What are any applications you see, you know, whether in the near term or way down the road? And I guess what I'm really trying to get at is how can we inoculate our backyard pine trees with porcini and make sure they grow? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> you know, people are actively trying to do this with very limited success. Right. So I think one problem is that it's likely that it takes a long time for Porcini to acquire enough resources to be able to produce mushrooms regularly. And I think that's probably the biggest obstacle to sort of a cultivation plan for Porcini. Right. Until somebody can really crack the code and do it in the lab in vitro. But, you know, I think we're very far away from being able to do that. So I think that's the biggest problem with that at the moment. And are there other applied potentials, something that, you know, my kind of forager thinking with my belly is, isn't quite seeing here? Do you see any ways that we could apply this knowledge of Bolitese, what you're learning about this whole family down the line here? Or or is it we need to find out more to, to figure out how it can be applied? You know, I'd say my research is really far away from anything applied. It's very sure. much basic, like providing baseline information that then eventually could lead to applications by people much more clever than myself. Because I can't, I don't think about <laughs> those kinds of things, but, you know, providing that foundation of knowledge really makes it possible for the, for the entrepreneurs and the really creative people to do that in the future. So I feel like that's my, more my role as much as I always want to have some insight about how can we use this, the whole idea is, no, we need to figure out what we don't know and establish the boundaries, the basics, build a framework that then we can do something with in the future. Uh, and what countries have you gone to to study this family? I mean, how ubiquitous are Bolotesi around the world? Well, as I said earlier, they are found worldwide. I mean, the only continent that don't occur on is Antarctica. <laughs> as far as we know as far as we know yeah. <laughs> but i've never been there so <laughs> and it's fine so they might show up i've concentrated most of my field work in southeast asia and then more recently in, in africa cameroon uh, madagascar and then of course north america and europe but also south america although less that's been less focused on the bolotesi per se and more on other projects like the mushroom mimicking dracula orchids Right. And more recently, I've been pursuing a project in Chile with Juliana on conservation of this important bully there, the loyo. 
And we're trying to understand the genetics of the population so that we can help inform sustainable harvesting strategies. There's an excellent application is learning more about these organisms and how they reproduce, how widely they're distributed, what they need in their habitat to thrive, basics like that, at least help us be more sustainable foragers. Yeah, and that's something, you know, we don't have that information for most fungi. So yeah, my lab is certainly hopefully providing some of those data points that can that can help inform conservation and sustainable harvesting strategies. Really fascinating. And if one comes to mind, what is one of the most wild Bolitaceae, or maybe like a favorite of just the Bolitaceae that you found? Because you've traveled the world looking at these and there's such a diversity. What is one or two that you think are crazy that we can all go Google after this? <laughs> oh boy, there are so many cool ones. <laughs> well, there's one in Cameroon that really stands out because of the smell, and that's Bolitus uh, aliaceus. And it smells like raw garlic, <laughs> really pungent. That's kind of a fascinating one. It's not particularly stunning visually, but there's a genus called Emioporus, and that's spelled H-E-I-M-I-O-P-O-R-U-S. That's found in uh, mostly in Asia and also into Australia. And that has some pretty remarkable looking taxa in it. Because boletes are such charismatic, striking mushrooms. And I've got one of the world expert of boletes here. I had to know some of these crazy <laughs> wild ones. So those would be good ones to to look into. But I do want to make sure we cover a little bit something that I was so fascinated by in reading your research. And that was ants that farm fungi. We were talking about this relationship between fungi and insects. So it should come as no surprise that, you know, there are many examples of relationships there. But this one feels really unique. I guess as best you can, what are the basics of ants cultivating fungi? You know, how many different ant species are these? How many different fungi species? Is it just there's a certain fungus farming ant out there farming one mushroom? Or, or what are we looking at on this landscape? So I have some answers to those questions, but not <laughs> all answers to those questions. So the fungus growing ants is a single lineage of ants that's found in South America, Central America, and parts of North America. Okay. And there's about 245 described species of ants that all subsist entirely on fungi that they grow as food in gardens. That's incredible. 245 <laughs> species. Yes, and there are more of them. And this is an old symbiosis. So this is about 60 million years old. So they've been, these ants have been successfully farming a monoculture for 60 million years. You know, humans, if you compare that to humans, we've been doing that for 10,000 years. So... <laughs> well, and it's something we ascribe to being a very human trait, this idea of cultivation and farming. And, yeah. you know, when I read about the ambrosia beetle, I think that's the work of the case on lab in West Virginia. When I hear, you know, you're about the termomyces mushrooms in Africa that are cultivated by termites. And then you have these fungus farming ants right here in America. It's like, is farming even the domain of humanity at all? <laughs> well, no, I think clearly not in the you know, the termite cultivation in Asia and Africa is a remarkable example of convergence. So mm -hmm. the termites, you know, are very distantly related to these ants, but they've both arrived at the same strategy, which right. is utilize a fungus. And in this case, in both cases, it's their mushrooms to convert, convert resources that were otherwise inaccessible into sources of nutrition. So 
in the fungus growing ants, they cultivate fungi from two groups of mushrooms. Now there's more, there's more than one species from each group that they cultivate. The story is not totally clear in all cases, but the two groups are the parasol mushrooms. So the leucocoprinus, leucoagaricus, these mushrooms are in a state of taxonomic flux. But then in the other group, they cultivate distantly related mushrooms in the family Teriulaceae, which most of your audience has probably never heard of. And that's because it's a relatively small family. We think there's probably 100 described species within the family that are primarily tropical in distribution, and they produce very tiny hair-like coral mushrooms. Rather inconspicuous, often overlooked. Um, that's probably why we don't know much about them. Why right. the ants cultivate them is a complete mystery. Okay. What we do know is that the ants that do cultivate them apparently switched from the other mushrooms about 25 million years ago. Wow. So they decided right. to farm a different crop. Picked up a different one. And we don't know why that is. Sure. Do you guys find, uh, are the mushrooms reproduction dependent on the ants? Have they kind of adapted to only reproduce with these ant colonies? Yeah, that's a great question. So the reason that I mentioned it earlier as an example of strict, strictly integrated symbiosis is that the fungi, as far as we know, are entirely dependent on the ant hosts for their propagation. So... The mushrooms themselves um, that, that are cultivated, they're cultivated in the saprotrophic phase, the non-reproductive phase. They do not reproduce outside of the nest, so they don't produce mushrooms regularly. There are a handful of observations of documentation of some mushrooms emerging from sort of senescent or abandoned gardens. But by and large, that does not seem to be the primary means by which those fungi are propagated. And you just brought up another big theme I got in the work is this idea of gardens, of microbial yeah. gardens, that actually the ants and the mushrooms aren't the only players involved, right? What are some of the other players involved in this whole cultivation that, that's going on? Yeah, so this symbiosis has become an icon for understanding mutualistic symbioses. And uh, one of the fascinating discoveries that has been made in the last couple of decades is that there's a specialized parasitic mold that occurs only within these gardens and attacks the cultivated mushroom, but it's, it's suppressed in the garden. So it's typically, it typically doesn't overgrow and take over. And the way that it's suppressed is in part by the ants mechanically removing it. It can recognize it and remove the spores, for example. Okay. But probably more importantly, through antifungal chemicals that are produced by bacteria that the ants carry on their own exoskeletons. So they're carrying so around their own pesticide. Yeah, they have a biocontrol agent that they wear on their bodies that's producing chemicals that actively suppress the growth, growth of this parasite. That's just mind-blowing. I mean, the level of symbiosis here, and you know, you could probably tease apart each symbiosis, you know, how did the ants develop a relationship with these exoskeleton inhabiting bacteria? There's a lot to unpack. Bacteria, those bacteria are related to things that are commonly found in the soil. So just through close contact 
probably they pick them up. Okay. But the ants have evolved specialized glands on their exoskeletons in which these bacteria grow, and they actually feed the bacteria with excretions from glands. So it's co-evolved to the point where there are adaptations that yeah. ensure its persistence. And another piece I picked up in there was this idea that there's communication involved. Somehow there are chemicals mediating communication. Now, how how is communication being facilitated between organisms? So this is something that we actually don't know very much about. And we are actively trying to understand that. So, for yeah. example, we know that the ants recognize their own cultivar from others. If you were to give the ants a cultivar from somebody else, they would reject it. They might eventually adopt it out of necessity, but they know the difference. But we don't know how they know the difference. (laughs) We think it's probably mediated by chemicals, but we don't know what those are. So we're trying to, we're trying to understand that in our lab right now. How do you examine this? I mean, Bryn can't dig down with a microscope and start looking into the ant colonies, or maybe you do, but how are you researching this symbiosis to try to pull away these kind of insights? So we're looking at multiple levels. So we can look at the chemicals that are being produced by the fungi, either grown on their own or in association with the ants. Then we can look at chemicals that might mediate the interactions. We'll see things that occur when they're with the ants. That's really difficult because the chemical soup that you find is very complex. And so teasing out you know, candidates that might be involved is, is really challenging. We have some information from other systems that we can draw on that help identify candidate, candidate chemicals that may be involved. So we know, for example, that hydrocarbons are often used by ants to recognize their nestmates. Okay. And so we might then expect to see hydrocarbon-like chemicals on the fungus that might be involved in that sort of recognition. So that's the kind of thing that we can sort of try to target. And once we have a candidate, we can then test, you know, test that hypothesis with bioassays. We can apply the chemical to non, non-native fungi and see if they'll accept it and that kind of thing. Now, what led you down this path? I mean, this is a fascinating symbiosis to study. What drew you into studying the, the fungus farming ants? Well, it was a bit serendipitous. So, you know, I have this interest in symbioses already. But then when I was a grad student, Dave McLaughlin was contacted by one of the, the leading scientists studying the fungus-growing ant symbiosis, who is not, not a mycologist. And he had discovered that the fungi that were being grown, this other group of ants, this is back in twenty early 2000s, the fungus that was called that that group of ants had switched to, nobody knew what it was. So they knew that it looked different than the fungi cultivated by all the other ants, but nobody knew what the identity of it was. Well, it turns out that there was a sterile fruiting body that showed up in one of these gardens in a lab, and that looked like it belonged to the Terry Lacey. And because Dave McLaughlin at the University of Minnesota was, at the time, the world's expert in Terulaceae, it was sent to him for identification. And it turns out that it was. And so that's how we knew, that's how we learned that those ants were growing Terulaceae fungi. So I fell into it because it was just into my, it was in my lab. (laughs) And I picked up the Terulaceae systematics to try to sort out how these things were all related. And then before you knew it, you were 
building ant farms and trying to figure out exactly what was going on <laughs> in this symbiosis. And just to give us an idea of what's going on, how, as best you can describe it, how functionally are the ants farming fungi? You know, what are they doing that actually helps to create an environment these fungi want to live in? Well, different ants do it differently. That's one thing. So, you know, the best known ants that do this are the leaf cutter ants. Probably everybody's seen natural history footage of these, right? You I know, have the planet Earth running in my head right now. You yeah. hear David Attenborough narrating <laughs> how the ants are cutting leaves and bringing them to a subterranean nest and using that as substrate to grow fungus. So that's sort of the archetypal example. But the rest of the ants, there's only a handful of ants to do that. The rest of the ants are all using bits and pieces of decomposing wood and, and leaf litter and that kind of stuff to grow their fungus. Do you think then the variation of these hundreds of species was convergent evolution from these ants in this region in the Americas, or did it diverge at, at certain points of one kind of er species of, of fungus farming ant? Or maybe that's one of these huge questions that you're looking at. We know that there's been some niche partitioning within the ants. The leaf cutters really represent a major innovation because suddenly this resource of fresh plant material, which was inaccessible, became accessible, right? So that opened up this, this huge opportunity for them. And that's why they've become the dominant herbivores, it turns out, in the neotropical forests. You know, that's an example of an event where there was this shift to this being able to utilize another resource and drove divergence of a species. So that probably has happened over and over over the past 60 million years, which has given rise to those 245 species. But they diverge for different reasons, right? It's not necessarily just the kind of material that they use to grow their fungus, but it might also be the resilience to less humid environments, for example. Or in the Terulaceae cultivating group, in one of them, they actually hang their nests from underneath leaves and logs. So now they're no longer dependent on competing for nest sites in the soil with all the other ants, right? So these are the kinds of changes that can drive divergence of species and give rise to this kind of diversity. So it's not all about the fungi that's driving divergence. There's all the other usual suspects or usual factors that could drive divergence within these sure. fungus farmers. I mean, almost certainly, I would say that there's been some some of that you know, being driven by the fungus as well. And sure. in particular, that parasitic mold may be driving changes to escape that parasitism, and that can right. give rise then to new species. Has this changed your perspective at all on non-human intelligence? Because this is such a, to me, it's something, again, that we associate with like a higher level order of thought, but obviously insects can't have nearly the computing power we have, right? Has this changed your perspective on that at all, on this idea of the domain of intelligence and what that really means, seeing something as humble as an ant engage in what we think of as kind of higher order thought and planning and things? I guess not really, but, you know, let me just qualify that by saying it's kind of a can of worms because, you know, we don't even know what intelligence means in the first okay. place, right? <laughs> so um, I think we'd have to start by defining what we mean by intelligence, number one. And if we're applying a definition of intelligence based on humans, then I think the answer is, for me, would be no. Because to me, what this represents is the power of natural selection and evolution. And we can see 
exactly the same kinds of things outside of this system. It's just, it's particularly clear in these kinds of situations because they're easier to interrogate. They've gone to such an extreme that it's easy to see them. But I think this kind of stuff is all around us. It's just much, much more difficult for us to see it. This is the natural process of evolution. You give it 60 million years, it can look really advanced. Or not, right? I mean, there's no directionality to evolution. It's whatever works, right? Whatever survives will leave another generation. And if you inject variation into that, that's what gives rise to all this tremendous diversity. Limitless amounts of questions to look at and these questions of evolutionary biology. And I'm so innately fascinated with it. I can see why yourself and so many people dive into that world to figure out, you know, what is going on? What is at the core of these relationships between organisms? It's absolutely fascinating. What is some of the current research that you're doing there in the Dettinger lab? We've talked about bits and pieces, but what's the current research you're doing or maybe some of your PhD students and folks affiliated with the lab? Yeah, we've kind of covered some of it. So I've got three major projects at the moment. I've got one where we're revising the systematics of the Bolitaceae using phylogenomics. But connected to that is trying to understand the basis of that evolutionary radiation. And to do that, we're examining population genomics within Boletus edulis, which is that widespread, morphologically and ecologically diverse species complex. And it's important, I think, that we are focusing on this species complex because a species complex is sort of at a phase where it's in between one and two species or one and multiple species, right? We can't really sort it out taxonomically very, very clearly, but that's sort of the, the ideal target for understanding the basis of divergence, right? The basis of what makes species diverge. And if we can understand that process, then perhaps that will help us to explain and understand why we see, we saw that evolutionary radiation within the family. So that's one major focus of the lab at the moment. Another major focus is this fungus growing ant symbiosis. And we're really trying to, to integrate information at the genetic level, the phylogenetic level, and the chemical ecology level, the functional level, to really integrate all of that into a much more holistic and complete view of how these interactions take place, how they're maintained, and how they give rise to the diversity that we see over evolutionary time. Those are the two big ones. And then the third one is really focusing on psilocybe, the magic mushroom genus psilocybe, and trying to revise the systematics of that group and understand the evolution of the biochemical synthesis of psilocybin and, and related compounds. Okay, how could I have skipped over that massive topic <laughs> and crowd favorite Philosophy. So is this a similar project, kind of akin to what you're doing with Bolitaceae? It is, although there's a much clearer comparative genomic approach because we know what the gene cluster is that generates psilocybin. That's been determined. And so we can actually target that specifically when we're looking right. at that evolution of, of psilocybin biosynthesis. And have there been any takeaways from that? That's a huge question I've asked a lot of people is why do they have these effects? Are they really trying to reach out to humans as kind of the <laughs> more airy interpretation might be? Is it just random evolution? Do you have any instinct there or have there been any insights yet from, from that kind of research? 
I think almost certainly it's involved in some kind of interaction between the mushrooms and other organisms. Right. I think it remains to be seen exactly what that interaction is and, and who the intended targets are. Insect deterrent. Or... Yeah, I think that's the big, you know, the assumption is that there, it's involved as a defense chemical to ward off mycophagous pests like insects or slugs or whatever. There's no evidence for that yet. So we've tried to do a little bit. We've shown actually that you can rear adult flies from psilocybe mushrooms, which means that it's not actually protecting the mushroom entirely from flies eating them. So, you know, that still remains a bit of a mystery is exactly what is going on. But there's been a lot of work done on the chemistry end and the biosynthetic end that has helped us to understand just what might be going on. The research you're doing is looking at some of these massive questions about, including about two of the mushrooms that we absolutely know and love, which are porcini and psilocybe. You're looking at these <laughs> massive questions on why they are, what they are, and what caused that. It sounds like that would be the kind of thing that would keep you preoccupied. Is there anything long-term, any projects or research you're looking to in the near future or the distant future? Well, these projects, I think, are probably going to be the focus of the rest of my career. Yeah. <laughs> They're not yeah, projects like that, that have, you know, finite. And, you know, the endpoint is not clear for any of them. So I think a lot of these, you know, I'm going to answer some questions, I hope. But that's going to raise a whole other set of questions. Now, I think I'm probably pretty locked into Porcini for the rest of my life, for sure. <laughs> fungus right. plants definitely is a wealth of, of knowledge yet to be gained there. But I'm also interested in other things, like... Gut anaerobic fungi, I find really fascinating. And there's not a lot known yet about them. And we're trying to do a little bit of that work, looking at some Pleistocene megafauna, extinct Pleistocene megafauna, looking in their dung <laughs> to try to find what types of anaerobic gut fungi they may have had. I don't know where that project might lead, but that's, that's <laughs> one thing that I could see sort of spending some time yeah, that sounds like many careers worth of research, looking back into the Plasticine era to see how gut fungi have evolved. Okay, another massive one. So we're, we're not thinking small here. Well, where can people find you and find more about this amazing research that you're doing? Where's the best place to find everything you're doing and the Dettinger Lab is doing? Um, so you can go to our lab website, which is dentingerlab.org. And then there's a blog that I very irregularly contribute to called dietarian.wordpress.com. There's a link to that from the lab website. And then I'm on social media at NHMU Mycology. That's on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And then we have a project specific Twitter and Facebook and Instagram account. And that's at fun underscore gr underscore ant. And that's for the fungus growing ant project. Well, I encourage people to go follow all your amazing work. If this caught your interest, there's so much more to get into, obviously, with, with all of those projects. And then a couple wrap-up questions that I ask all my guests. We've talked about some amazing ones here today. But what is a mushroom that you love and why? I'm going to say you can't say Boletus edulis. No, you can say whatever you want. But a mushroom you love and why? It doesn't have to be a favorite. Yeah, I was going to say Boletus edulis, but uh, I won't do that to you. I really like... Rhododus palmatus, if you know that one. Never heard of it. Uh, look it up. It's fascinating. It's got this crazy wrinkled red cap. That's a beauty. That's always my favorite find, although it doesn't occur here in Utah. Well, that's the thing. When you have a worldwide 
image of fungi you can start picking from anywhere. So I, I had a feeling you'd have a really fascinating one. And then what has a relationship with fungi and mushrooms given to you? And this can be really broad. I mean, this could be spiritual, just, you know, whatever it is. What is a relationship with fungi uh, given to you? You know, it's endlessly fascinating, these organisms. They're always, you know, as many of your listeners may experience, it's they're really mysterious. <laughs> you know, that, you know, keeps me fascinated. And, and going out in the field, which unfortunately I don't get to do so much anymore, but it's a treasure hunt every time you're out there. And that's what I find most fulfilling, really, is that the mystery, the diversity, the unknown that I get little glimpses of. I think that's one of the biggest things that attracts everyone to the world mushrooms. I thought that was beautifully put. And then what is the lasting impact that you hope to have with your work answering these big kind of cosmic questions about mycology and mushrooms? What's the impact you hope to have with your work? Well, I hope that I provide a foundation of knowledge that people can use to benefit human society, either by finding new uses that help people or finding fascination that fulfills them spiritually, or find ways to help preserve our environment for future generations. So I feel like I'm, my work is very far from those applications, but ultimately, you know, I really do hope that this work leads to something useful for human society. I'm a firm believer that unlocking the mysteries of fungi like you're trying to do are at the heart of really advancing as a species, which is interesting. I think studying mushrooms is going to make us better people, but I, I think that's definitely all all in there. Well, Bryn, thank you so much for your time, being really generous with breaking down some of these concepts that I'm still trying to come to grips with. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show and sharing with us. Thank you. I had a great conversation. <laughs> 